0: It's great. It's great to hang with you, man. Um, I want to put this um, audio clip in and have you listen to it, and then we'll come back and break it down. Okay?
1: Okay. That uh, sidemen were undergoing during the swing era the big bands. It was so the bands were so big that. There was no, no the opportunity to create was limited. I mean, if you did have a solo, it was a short solo, and it wasn't enough to really satisfy your urge to to create. And and, and uh, we, as creative artists, needed to find a way to bring attention to uh, the work that we were doing, the, the, the art that we were creating. Right. And the, the, the way to do that is to have your own voice, to develop your own voice that's recognizable. Then you could market that or that voice. I mean, when I use the term market, I use it hesitantly. Uh, because I, I, I feel that that has become a problem uh, in the creative process. Uh, it's so separate from the from the creative process, and it it, it interferes with the quality of that product, uh, the, the the quality of the art' that's, that's, that's produced. And we became aware that if we really wanted to be accepted, if we really wanted to be recognized, we had to have something, uh, a unique voice like that people could learn. They, when they hear it, they can they can recognize it, and that that, that gives it more value. Uh, like take, for instance, the, the problem that Sonny Stitt had when he was playing the alto saxophone. Right. He was sounding so much like Charlie Parker exactly. that he was ignored. He was ignored. As brilliant as he was, he was ignored because he didn't have his own voice. So he changed it to the tenor saxophone and accomplished what he really wanted to accomplish. He, he became unique on the tenor saxophone. He didn't sound like anybody else but himself. And uh, another example is uh, Sonny Robbins. You know, he sounds like... Only like himself, although he was perhaps inspired by uh, uh, Ducky Thompson or uh, uh, there's a couple of other people that uh, do that. Well, Colvin Hawkins. Sure.
0: Uh, Yes. But I mean, you Uh, know, sounding, I mean, thank you for sitting through that. You have any idea who that is? No, I don't. Who was that? Uh, that was a badass trombone player, Julian Priester. You know Julian. Uh-huh. And uh, a question that I that I had for him that that I'll ask you is, um, going back to um, the days of, I mean, even before uh, the Black Artist Group, but just in general, um, why you feel your generation when it came to playing spiritual music was incredibly um, uh, uncompromisable as it related to individual sound. Nobody wanted to sound like anybody else. And if somebody came up to you and said, hey, man, you sounded just like so-and-so, you'd want to slit your wrists. And so Julian was talking about the frustration of coming out of the swing era and sort of having to play these very straight parts and recognizing that, um, you know, that they were going to have to stand out in order to market themselves at a time when the record industry was actually functioning. But I just wonder about why you feel that your generation of musicians was strident and forthright about wanting to have their, your own unique sound on your instrument.
1: Well,
2: um, yeah we, we we talked that way uh, I've, I've been in conversations where we've had uh, uh, talking about hey well you know we don't want to sound I don't want to sound like that but me personally um, I, I I never felt that way because you know I would have loved to have been able to sound like uh, Paul chambers <laughs> if somebody would have came to me and said, hey man you know you sound like Paul chambers he would have made my life.
0: <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, it's.
2: Uh, uh, I didn't mind sharing that with with the uh, the elder musicians that were around me. Um, uh, in the in in, in St. Louis, you know, uh, there were. T- There's a time in my lo- life where I would have loved to sound like you know, uh, uh, Mixon, John John Mixon. Right. Um. But, you know, but I can understand, you know, we didn't want to, we didn't want to sound like the jazz Tet. I mean, Oliver and, the, and most of the brothers that I was playing with, we didn't want to sound like that. Right. Because our music wasn't like that. Right. You know, I and guess that's so maybe
0: that, that's the better. I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. That's what, that's what I get a lot is that,
2: you know, i uh-oh, my camera just uh, uh, switched Okay, there we are. Yeah, you're good. Yeah, um, you know, we didn't want to sound like uh, uh, the R. Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, but if, uh, if that happened, I think that everybody in the group would be, be glad of that, because that's a, a giant accomplishment. Uh, individually, I think, you know, uh, that's why people wear, you know, their individual clothes, they can be recognized by certain things. And I have a feeling that nobody wants to be recognized because they sound like someone else, you know. But that individual would probably be very glad to say, hey, man, you know, you really remind me of train. You know, I, so- I,
0: think more, I think the better, the better question, uh, because if you look at BAG, <laughs> the Artist Ensemble of Chicago, Weather Report, Oregon... Mahavishnu Orchestra, um, as groups, the Crusaders, when they dropped the jazz, everybody had their own individual set. None of those groups sounded like anybody else. And in today's musical paradigm, in this country, the only way that you can get a gig now, truly, is by comping somebody else. I mean, there's just there's a propensity. Of this this plethora of wanting to comp and there's a good reason for it, because if you're playing experimental music, you're never ever gonna see the bandstand and you're never well you may see the bandstand you're not gonna get paid for a gig, and so I just yeah, it, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. so I just I, I mean that, you know when when, when yeah, you yeah, you, I hear what, yeah when you when you talk
2: interrupting
0: and when you when um, you when you when when yeah. you and Oliver and the cats like it was nonverbal. But when you say, obviously you would take the compliment if somebody came up and said, man, you guys are swinging like the Blakey messengers or the sextet. I mean, that would be a great compliment. But you guys wanted to find your own sound. And how did, I guess I'm asking about the evolution of that, that, how how that came to be.
2: Well, uh, uh, (laughs) I I guess you would just have to be there. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, I dig when, when uh, I, I don't know how to say that because, you know, if you talk to Oliver Lake, if you go talk to Oliver Lake and sit down in the, with a table at a table with Oliver Lake and Arnett Coleman happens to be sitting in the same table, you will know the difference in their smiles and how they look, and how they explain and express things. That is the same thing that, you know, happens in the music, you know, where Oliver, uh, oh, I know, um, you know, you know Claude Lawrence?
1: Um,
0: I don't, offhand, no.
2: Well, Claude Lawrence is an alto saxophone player that lives in, I think he lives in England now, Mm. and I played with him when I was in New York. With uh, uh,
0: um, uh, Dennis Charles.
2: Have you heard that name?
0: No, but I am I love you. I love that you're hipping me to all these cats. So go ahead.
2: Yeah, Dennis Charles played with Freddie Red.
0: Oh my, in a, in are you connection. kidding me? Oh, my a God. I'm obsessed ago. with Freddie Red. Great drummer. Freddie and, Red, man. That dude is so... San Francisco's sweet, man. Unreal, man. So, and so, uh, yeah, Dennis Charles. And...
2: Well, Claude Lawrence to me yeah And because you know you know I hung out with Arnett Coleman, my wife and I we traveled to Morocco with Arnett, uh, and uh, Clarence uh, uh, Clarence Claude Lawrence uh, sounded a lot like Arnett Coleman. In other words, his tone, his the, the phrase structure, his timing uh, was a lot like uh, what Arnett Coleman. And we had a trio in New York called Fountain, with uh, Dennis Charles and myself. That's the, a picture that you that you uh, put on your, on your. Oh website. yeah, 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 Made yeah, the, yeah. The yeah. Well, that's Claude Lawrence and the drummer, uh, Dennis Charles, uh, and he sounded and wrote music a lot like Arnett Coleman. As a matter of fact, if when you heard him for the first five minutes and you didn't see them. You would think it was Arnett, you know. So um, uh, that didn't bother him. It didn't bother me. And sometimes, when you get into a certain certain voice of the music, you will find you will sound like the creator of that voice. Now, as the night goes on, you know, and the, and 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 everything becomes more and more fluent. Uh, it might change uh, Arnett's group during certain solos and concerts, the, the sound of the group would change, but you would recognize as Arnett, but it wouldn't sound like that group say in the first 25 or 30 minutes of the concert. So I think that, you know, the physical, the physical realities of playing an instrument at that level with those in that kind of intensity uh it will ch- change during a concert but le- as you were talking about there is an overall ambient sound of the group you know like everybody will recognize uh, uh, uh art blakey everybody will recognize the jazz tet when they first when they first hear them um uh, and i i think that I think that it's just like the signature of a painter, or or a poet.
0: I mean, just on your own personal experience. I mean, like when you try to harness that ambient feel, would you say that um, that it's kind of it's 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 expression and it's nonverbal? It's not like you're talking about. How to sound different? It just, you know, because I mean, you're you're borrowing from all the the, the the geniuses, but ultimately you don't want you're not you're not playing cover tunes, right? I mean, in fountain. No, know. no, no, it's not
2: about that. Can you imagine? This is what I'm talking about. Can you imagine having your group? You got a you got a twelve piece group ensemble, and you want to play a song like "Lonely Woman" by Arnett Coleman. Now, how much like Arnett Coleman do you want that sound so- that song to sound like? You're going to want it to sound a lot like Arnett. It will not sound like that. Right. But there are certain there are certain uh, intervals in the in the in the tune itself that are indicative of Arnett Coleman, and you want to voice those intervals, and it, that's you know that's how I see it, and and. Uh, uh, all music i believe is nostalgic so so if you want to play a song by by Mingus or you know or you know you want the audience to remember Mingus you want them to to be engulfed by that particular texture and and i think that's that's what it, i think that's what most musicians when they play someone else's music what you know? You've heard say, "Hey, man, I don't play that. Kind, I don't play his music." You get guys that say that, but when someone does play someone else's music, the, the nostalgia part comes in. Nah. There are certain aspects of the song that they want to elevate and enlighten, uh, elevate and bring forward, and say, "Notice this piece about. Notice this particular feeling that happened in these twelve bars," and most musicians will tell you that
0: talking to Arzinia richardson here on the jake feinberg show and uh both of us just happy to be heard and seen uh on this wonderful friday beautiful day in costa rica um yeah it is you know what's your um legitimately um johnny griffin dexter gordon eric dolphy so many of these cats um uh wound up moving to Kluke. they wound up moving to europe um because, uh, well, I mean, they got paid as art. They were treated as real artists and they were paid. But I think it was also um, what people refer to as cultural bias or they were sick and tired of the racism uh, in the United States. And I wanted you well, to. Yeah. I mean, listen, yeah, the reason that it's so nice. Um, to I just want to say that the reason it's so nice to connect with you is just because you were able to bridge the gap between peoples of different skin color and you had a ball doing it and you were unafraid of that and I'm not sure why that is in this significant minority. I, I, I mean, I, I am a naive 41-year-old cat but I, I don't, and I realize that there's, it's complicated but at the same time, what was your take on it when all these masters of, you know, these bop masters we're moving out of the United States, where the art form was actually originated.
2: Well, you know, um, I think, I think it, you know, um, it was about, and this might sound very, very, very weird, but I think it was about intellect. The, uh, you know, in in, in Europe, uh, people are not afraid to be intellectually involved, it's not so much as an emotional thing here in the United States, where there's two or three layers you have to get through before you can say uh, you can get to the, the 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 heart core, you know. And and and, and in in Europe, uh, people were educated to respect intellect and. And I think that because most during the World War II, uh, jazz was considered um, one of the epitomes of protest when it came to nationalism and the Nazis and all that kind of racism, where jazz was an international protest symbol intellectually because it was difficult to play if you didn't know how to do it, even if you were a classical musician. So I think the Europeans, uh, the Germans and the English and, uh, you know, uh, the people that heard it and were interested in the music, I think they were intellectually attracted to it. Mm. And the type of racism that exists in Europe is a different type of racism that is that is a prominent in the United States. And I think that most of... Uh, when you talk about... You know, you, t- you talk about Sonny Rollins, you talk about them brothers like that. These were, these were intellectual brothers. They loved art. They loved mm-hmm. painting and poetry in all the forms. And, and uh, it's a very a difficult thing to live your life in a nightclub <laughs> and not be able to go to a park and sit down and talk to someone that you don't know you know about hansbury you know or you know or you know or, or you know it's like that it, and and i i think that most of the brothers that that went to to england and lived lived there it was an intellectual choice that became comfortable after they were there for a while because people before they would look at them as being a black person or, you know, or an Indian person or anything like that, they would look at them as artists. And that's, and in the United States, um, um, if you don't, if you're not on radio or TV or something like that, people don't look at you as an artist. They won't, they won't do that. I mean, it's, uh, it's well, but it's, I mean, also,
0: they, like, I mean, like I, 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 his birthday was this week, and God bless him, Big Black, the great Congo player. He, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, he, I've never met him No, I mean I, I had a chance to hang with the cat I mean he, 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 he goes hot and cold with Jake Feinberg But man he the, I mean he's talking going back to the days of I mean it's one thing to be considered an artist But then there's another thing to get paid Sing for your supper And you know you'd have bills Where you know Duke Ellington Band uh, Is opening for the average white band And the average white band's getting Three or four times the amount of money That the Duke Ellington Band's getting You know, it it was it. There's a fine line. I understand that these cats were well versed in all different forms of artistic mediums, Um, and there is a. a You're right about that. The the you're 100. There's racism everywhere. Okay, so there's different types of racism that there is in Europe, and France, and Germany, and, and as opposed to the United States. But to me, it's confounding. And demoralizing to a degree to see where we're at today with the classicalization of jazz you don't really see a lot of ethnic percussion in jazz anymore it's sort of been outsourced to world music but man you look at any jazz album from the early to mid 70s and there was always you know congas and bongos and african rhythms and now you look at jazz today and it's like a classical I remember B- Bab said it it's, it's it's like classical music now, and it's be- Well, it's um let us let me
2: yeah uh, go you riff any way you I want.: i came up in the time of Blue Note the blue Note, yep. Note yep. records and I and I'm sitting here right now uh, thinking very warm thoughts of the brothers the two the two gentlemen that uh, were the producers of Bruno Alfred blue Ly- Note, uh, Lyons, and, Alfred Lyons, and, uh, Alfred Lyons uh, Alfred Lyons uh, yeah um, yeah Lyons and Ben Gelder. Oh, yeah. Those brothers for a long, long, long time presented the music, African, uh, you know, uh, progressive music. Uh, they presented it at a very high quality. The record covers the things, the things they had to say, the liner notes, all of those stuff. The engineering was superb, you know? And and I, I think that um, that particular spirit of genuine of genuine caring about a product, especially one produced by a predominantly Black people, is is hard to maintain in the marketplace because the as quasi is kept the 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 um, purchasing the people that participate in capitalism being African Americans in the United States are not that informed. Mhm. That's right. You see, yeah. and and this is this is what happened. They you know, people talking about right now, they go around talking about being woke, right? Well, I'm still with the hip generation.
0: Dude, aim hipness. dude, you A- A- know what dude, I am, and, dude, I, don't I want know you to break, but what's the difference between being hip yeah. or being woke?
2: But you know, as as far as I can go in the dialectics of that, I'll stay. I'll stick around with being hip, because I think that Bud Powell and Phineas Newborn Jr. and 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 Dexter Garden were hip. <laughs> now, this is what this, this is my my uh, particular. This is my standpoint. This is where I stand, and I, I don't I want I don't want to change the subject, but I do want to mention.
0: Yeah.
2: Um. Um. I want to mention the women and like, first of all, I'd like to mention my wife, Barbara, Ann Richardson, who I've been married to for 52 years. And to, to the, to give a shout out to all the sisters that backed all these brothers that appeared in these nightclubs. You know, and practice three, four, five, six hours a day when they're awake in the daytime. And the sisters that took care of them. And it is an unsung army there, you know. And like at this stage of my life, I'm not engaged in very much music, but you know, you, when you stand by and you say, Look, my wife, I've been knowing her longer than I've been knowing my mother. And and uh, um, a lot of the women, when you go back into the music and you look at Monk, you know, you
0: know, Krebsky with Nelly. Right. Baroness. And, you know, that's the Baroness. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, right. 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 And when you have Monk writing about Nelly, you know, it's not only a beautiful song, you got to understand what she was doing moment to moment, day to day to make those things possible. and, <laughs> And so I just want to
0: give a shout out. No, to I, 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 I think handle. it's fantastic. No, but listen, I, I think. I was thinking when I was talking
2: to you <laughs> before, I said, I got to say uh, uh, for me and, and uh, to give homage to the women in my life that, you know, help me find my keys. You know, I mean, all all kinds of stuff that go on from moment to moment that that helps a brother write a song. It helps someone stay stay in practice three and four hours, and makes that possible for him. And um, um, not to mention sisters like Vi Red, for example. Oh, badass! And badass Dorothy Ashby. Oh
0: know, God, uh, the harp! Did you? Uh, I mean, she uh, she was amazing. Uh, the
2: other sister, uh, the the piano player, I can't think of her name right now. In the, in the '40s. Uh, but I'm just want, I, I just want to say that this community of music makers and the people that provide the, the environment for those people to at, le- at least be com- have a modicum of comfort when they're not in the, in the nightclub, I think that, that um, it's a very important part of our culture.
0: The Baroness also um, allowed a lot of the junkies to come and crash at her house too. I mean, they. Yeah. yeah. It, <sighs> it's it's important to
2: know that our society is you know it's a, what can I say man we have to understand how precious it is and and like um, uh, do you know do you know a uh, uh, Maggie Palaya? No. Ooh, my brother. <laughs> now, Maggie Palaya, she owns WDNA in Miami. And mm-hmm. WDNA has been an all-jazz station as long as I can remember. I used to work for them. I was a DJ there. And she has she has interviewed and been around the the music for a long time. She's from Cuba. But uh her husband and her, they run WDNA in Miami. And she's one of those voices that, you know, like I said, you if you haven't heard of her, you know, and uh, she's been the FM radio station owner for over 25, 30 years. And I think that, you know, uh, and, and and it's a jazz radio station. You don't find very many of those around anymore. And so, and so this is... Um, you know, we, we, you, me, and the people like us, you know, uh, we have a, we have a goal, we have a, a purpose, but it is unsung for the most part because there are, our competition is a mercantile competition. And most of the people like us are artists and we do a lot of other things just so we can do what we love.
0: Um, I also want to say that, uh, You know i don't know if lyons and van gelder um were directly involved but i mean uh in my interview with kenny burrell you know he was very close with grant obviously they were peers and in some cases competitors but in in a friendly way and you know whoever was involved i mean a lot of times grant green talk about blue note records i mean those records today those, if they're in good condition, those those pressings are worth first pr- pressings on blue note worth hundreds of dollars. And at the time, Grant was such a junkie. I mean, they 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 never paid him. They just played him in junk, you know.
3: Yeah, and it, yeah.
0: You know, and, it, and 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 that goes back to what you said about this sort of. Well, it was just really interesting. Um, Clarence McDonald. I don't know. You probably don't know who that cat is, but he's uh, one of the most ridiculous arrangers and key- keyboardists. He he arranged "How Sweet It Is" for James Taylor. Taylor, yeah. uh, you know, and, 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 and he And, you know, he played, grew up with Charles Lloyd But, I mean, th- did so much work And he, he said, I just transcribed this He said um, <clears throat> He said to me Unfortunately, genius does not translate into dollars More times than not Because they are geniuses They are despised Because they're so much better than the people that they work with And they generally have no knowledge of economics that's a sad legacy but that's been going on as long as there's been a music business i remember dexter gordon was playing in europe and the audience begged his people to let him stop playing because they didn't want to see him in that condition condition still having to work um but you know i agree with you the the music that you came up with that you came up with and that you performed Um, was communal music and it was supported by the communities and that today you know we've had a breakdown in communities we've had a breakdown in the nuclear family we've had a breakdown in so many of these things that um you know those efforts those communal efforts were oftentimes outside of berserko capitalism you know you know what i'm saying
2: yeah it's you know um a lot of my warmest and nostalgic memories uh, in Saint Louis after a ball game. I don't know if you know what Karkball ball is, but in Saint Louis <laughs> ball was big.
0: What what is cartball?
2: Cor- cork or cork ball
0: Oh cork kart. ball.
2: Wow, yeah. And and ball well anyway, ball was big in Saint Louis and Um, after card ball games, there used to be maybe two or three guys that I used to hang around with because, um, and I, and I do believe that they, if they weren't junkies, they were high all the time, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: but those brothers are the brothers that told me, Hey man, you should go read Cahill Gibran,
0: right? The prophet. you know, have you
2: heard this is my beloved by Lawrence Harvey? Have you done? And you know, I mean, it was like, what I mean by hipness, um, and that's what I when I grew up and I came up. I read, I read Walter Benton. I I read uh, Cahill. I read a, a lot of those, you know, uh, um, those uh, popular books at that time. And I went on from there, but it wasn't my teachers in school that I that I was inspired by most of the guys that I really, really inspired by and listened to were, um, not very wealthy guys. Uh, they had serious issues, uh, but they were willing to sit down and show you how to play a song and, and, or you know, or show you how to hold a card ball back, right? They were, you know, show you how to play dominoes how to count and you know i came up loving that and so um when the music when the music came into my life um i i hung around with uh, a a master drummer guys like i mentioned joe charles and Sonny hamp and and um benson thick and jerome harris um And these guys were warm enough to show you what they knew, you know, and then if you didn't get it or you started acting silly, they would tell you about it. And I, I, I learned that from them. And as I grew older, uh, the, uh, the techniques became, because of my own, I guess, intellect became more in depth and complicated. So I have to give thanks to all those brothers, all those, all those uh, musicians and poets that nobody took seriously except the people that knew them. You know, they're now, they weren't going to go on the, uh, on, the, uh, on the radio and recite poetry. That didn't happen in those days. They had no guys like you that would talk to uh, people like me on radio about jazz or anything else
0: yeah well yeah I I mean I just you know before we go any further I I, I, I actually do want to just get what please give me a definition of hip and a definition of woke
2: I can't give you a definition I only only I can give you an interpretation yeah
0: that's fine
2: uh um do you you remember what the term was among musicians in the '40s? Um, have,
0: no, no, definitely not.
2: No. Have you ever heard the Vons?
0: How do you spell that?
2: Uh, V O U N C E.
0: Oh my God! What does that mean? I've never heard of that. The, you never heard of the Vons? No, there's a lot that I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot.
2: That... Well, Dexter and some other cats used to use it.
0: The vance, oh, the idiosavant, the idiosavant. The,
2: idios the vance, the vance was, you know, the style of presentation. Oh. generally, the vance is what happens when you walk in the room. The vance, and 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 and, and so, the hipness. Uh, let me let me let me give you a hip concept. Dig okay you can count the seeds in an apple but you can't count the apples in a seed that's a hip concept
0: for the for the lay person out there explain <laughs> why that's a hip concept pardon me for the people listening around the world, explain why that's a hip concept.
2: Because it is a completed concept. The seed comes with all the information, not the apple. When you, you know, you can count the seeds in an apple, but you cannot count the apples in a seed because (laughs) the concept is complete the seed that looks nothing like a ha- apple has all of the information of that entire concept that
0: is hip well you we're, we're having a ball here i got another name that i got another name <laughs> that voice. i mean I, I you know hey man you know, you know, that I'm just a little crazy. <laughs> no, I mean that, that's that's a good thing too. Listen, I, I I do feel that woke. When I hear woke culture, I the me, the minute I hear that, I I think um, somehow it's there's it's politically correct, and therefore it, it, it you can easily <laughs> offend people. And I don't. And, and the cats that you mentioned that are hip uh, were, I mean, they weren't going out of their way to. They were beautiful people, but they were. Um, they were going to play the music they wanted to play, and they could, They were not interested in whether they offended people or not. And, I, you know, well, you don't want to – listen, you don't want to be walking on eggshells, man. And, and it, it seems to me in a woke culture – listen, I, I can speak from experience that I was a teacher of the visually impaired for eight years, and I made a comment that wound up um, basically um, – it was before the Me Too movement, but um, – This human resource department um, tried to. They went after my family. They went after me. They went after me completely. I mean, it was. It was. And it was something over. It was something so insignificant, and yet they tried to destroy people because of this wokeness. That's what's bothersome to me. I. I, To me. Yeah, I think that woke. I think
2: that woke. You know, I don't use that.
0: Uh, No, but you're. You're right. It's a current. It's a current. It's a current Uh, term. You hear a lot.
2: Is that. For me, woke tends to mean tends to indicate an individual. You know, I mean, uh, if you say wokeness, you know, if there's somebody is aware of his own presence in a situation that that is say 85 or 75 percent against them, you can be woke, but that doesn't mean you'll win. And and the idea is that a hip a hipness means that you do not engage unless it's equal. You do, you do, you do not engage unless there is a, 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 a reciprocity involved.
0: Are we talking about reciprocity of respect? Yeah. Yeah, I dig. You know, you know, it, it's. I it's, dig. It, I think you nailed it. The,
2: yeah, I think you nailed it. You know, and it's uh, woke means that you know somebody can be any, any way they want to, and you and you're quote hip to them. I'm hip to that shit. I'm woke. But the idea is that when some when? Hipness to me. Yeah, you know, Hipness. To me is is. Uh, the idea of. A comprehensive piece. To be able to anticipate a situation. And balance it before it becomes unbalanced. You see, and stay away from unbalanced things. You know, if if I were, if I remember when uh, Billy Eckstein came out with the Mr. B
0: collar. Do you remember that? Again, I'm going to just gonna let you know I was born in 78, so probably not. Okay, yeah. you know,
2: yeah. well, Billy <laughs> Eckstein came out with the, the, the Mr. B collar. He had a shirt that was called the Mr. B, and, you know, that was hip, <laughs> And everybody that I knew that liked to dress, liked to dress up, had a Mr. B collar, Mr. Billy Eckstein shirt. You know, uh, I, I don't know if that was the first marketing thing that they had, but Billy Eckstein had that. Billy Eckstein, uh, in my mother's day, was considered to be hip. You know, and so we don't, Mr. B is what they, you know, and B- Billy Eckstein was a great singer. I, you know, I wasn't necessarily a fan of his, because during that time, I was still coming up. I liked I like Charlie Parker and and other other guys. Yeah. I didn't like singers that much, but um, and, unless it was Joe Williams with Count Basie,
0: <laughs> right? And then someone like but, and, then but, that, and then you look at that and you look at and you look at what Clarence McDonald said about geniuses starving to death. Joe Williams wound up you know in a, in, a, in an alleyway somewhere. You know, I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, Arzinia, we have. It's, it's, you know, there there was a, uh, just
2: to get off the subject just a little yeah. bit. I, you know, uh, when I was thinking about uh, talking to you uh, yesterday, I was thinking about that. And and I said, what if this guy asked me, what are my favorite this and this and this and this? And one of the songs popped into my head, and it was Joe Williams and and, and uh, Lambert Hendrickson Ross.
0: Together? And... Pardon me. They were they were singing together. Yeah. All four. I've never. Well, what what tune is that? You take your New York joys. I'm going to
2: Illinois <laughs> just as fast as I can. You had never heard that before. No. You I... New York women make a fool out of any man. You play all sorts of games and you cheat if you can. Use love like a tool, make a man a fool. What a beautiful model! That's Joe Williams and Lambert Hendricks and Ross.
0: Going to Chicago blues, maybe? Yeah, man. Maybe. Oh, yeah, man. going to Chicago. Going to Chicago. And
2: and 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 you know, I heard that song when I was what thirteen. I have never forgotten. You know, I, I learned, I learned how to bow that on my, on my bass fiddle, Doo ba, boo, do, boo, do. I thought that was hip. (laughs) I love this. The blues like that. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, you know, a lot of the brothers that you talk to took our music and its implications seriously, and you have to be there, you know, it didn't work. In the in the African community as a whole, they did not take our music seriously. In the in the in the way that it was offered, we got we 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 got sucked up in in, in the commercialism of it, without understanding the viciousness of of how it was dealing with our artists. And and I, I think um, that that has proved devastating to a lot of our creative artists and, and um, here we are today, you know, um, I don't know what to say. I can't hear any good, you know, I I, I think that we got hypnotized by electric guitars. I think that, 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 you know, why would you need a synthesizer when you can have someone that can actually play a piano? I understand. That if I have my Moog synthesizer, that I can synthesize a violin section, I can do that, you know. But and then I can do, I can make some music that somebody might listen to it, and they can do it better than I I I do, and all of a sudden you have almost all of the violin players in the United States out of a job. I uh, nobody making violins.
0: oh well, I mean nobody that's a.
2: It's like that.
0: Um, we have another game, another name. That voice. I'm not sure if you've crossed paths with this cat, but I want you to pay attention to the content. And uh, okay, we'll come back and break it down.
3: When, when it comes to the Grateful Dead, uh, and it come, when it comes to me organizing that music um, and, and doing arrangements for my own octet, um, you know, the grateful, music, grateful Dead music. I mean, that music inspired thousands of people they had They probably have one of their had had one of the strongest uh, uh, audience base in the united states um they did very well in their careers and um you, at some point you have to respect every kind of music um and the, and the fact is when i did these arrangements, they were very uh they were very aware uh and very um uh, thankful that i had put it in the jazz format you know I mean, they were they were with me in this project, you know. Even though uh, they didn't appear, only Bob appeared in, in it. But uh, but they were definitely behind me uh, at every step. Now, uh, as far as Arnold Copeland, I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm here at the Visions festival tonight, and uh, after this, I'm going to go up and meet the Donados. Uh, Loft, which was that Coleman's Loft and, uh, and I loved the music of Arnett Coleman, and I understand that he Did have a, he did sit in with the Dead As well, as as, as well as Branford Marcellus, so I wasn't the only saxophone Player to play with them, I mean he, The night that I sat in, I think James Cotton was also sitting in that night
0: Right, I mean would you When you talk um, I often listen to the Dead But I mean, was there Was it just that they were Improvisatory, and that made it quote unquote jazz, or were they not, I guess what I'm getting at is that uh, when Ornette came out with his concept in 59 or so, I mean, both Jerry and Phil drank that Kool-Aid very hard, and I just mm-hmm. want, I wanted you to just talk about uh, the, you know, how, how much, when you put it into a jazz format, what did that really entail, what, what did you have to take it from and put it into, to put it in your own, in your own music?
3: Well, I mean, I mean, their music is uh, all their music is basically in the song farm. So at least having the song form is a very easy start. You know, all, all I had to do was just, uh, just do with their song form, and then open it, open it up, and uh, and there's very little swing on that album. If you remember, it's mostly some um, uh, R&B or rock and roll based uh, meter. So it was right. very easy to do. I mean, the, the hardest thing was the, the horn arrangements. But uh, because they all, they, all, they write very they the songs. And Phil Lesh and, uh, Phil Lesh and it's, it's obvious in the group that Phil Lesh and, uh, and, and, and Jerry, they, they both study jazz. And that didn't mean that they had to play jazz. I mean, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of musicians that study jazz that are rock musicians in order to have a higher knowledge of the music itself.
0: Thank, thank you, Arzinia, for letting me play that for you. You want to take a guess at who that is?
2: Uh, it sounded like Wayne Shorter, but I don't know who was it.
0: It was David Murray. Oh, David Murray. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and that was that. It just yeah, before uh, I wanted to ask. I know David very well. I, I, mean, I Not very well. We we hung out a lot in New York. I figured you guys. I mean, you know, you know, birds of a feather flock together. You know, I mean, like you guys are so spiritual and beautiful. But you know, he was talking about he took he took Grateful Dead songs and and made an album with his octet. Um yeah. of those tunes and I'm always trying to get at this this thing because you know, I mean, Jerry at a certain point um in the early 70s started to play with Merle Saunders a lot because um Merle was actually a good bebop player and could work on jazz lines with Jerry because Jerry realized that he was kind of stuck in his playing. And I think yeah. it's fair to say if I could ever talk to the cat, that Phil Lesh was the guy who basically was like, you know, let's drop the bar lines, uh, on the music and just play free, which is kind of a, um, an aesthetic of jazz, but none of those guys, um, had the chop. I mean, Jerry couldn't play, Um, They weren't playing jazz standards, but they would leave, they would leave the head of the, I I, I want you to, I I want you to break down. I think that what the, the, like
2: we talked about this the last time we spoke, when you, we, when you play rhythm and blues or you play rock and roll, um, there's not a lot of variations right in the pattern of the chord changes right you see and uh right. but when you get to jazz you know there are specific ways and chord pat patterns that make up a ballad a ballad will go like this and whatever notes that, and whatever speed or whatever notes you want to put in there you can put them but the but the chord pattern of a ballad no matter what card or what key it is played in has the same motion so to speak and that is you know with rhythm changes with playing the blues the blues is a pattern uh rhythm rhythm changes is a pattern of course a chord structure and and uh, ballads like that uh, uh you know it's a pattern well rock and roll doesn't have that a rock and roll is like, like the brother said, is based for mostly singing, and it's not really, it's not really, uh, you know, uh, what is that brother that sang uh, that song? It's a be- um, uh, um I can't think of it right now. Old man stuff, and I always really loved his uh, singing this song for you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let me look that up. I, I know what you're talking about i spent some in my days and time. What was know, it was it Ray, Ray, uh, Ray Charles? Ray Charles. this. Part, what's Ray, his name? Uh, Ray Charles. No, no, no. He he. He
2: also sang it, but I'm talking about the guy that wrote it. Uh, singing this song for you. I lived my life on the stage in time. I've uh,
0: I've wrote some uh, songs. I wrote some bad rhymes. But, but now my the so, life is over. Right, you mean, yeah, no, Leon, Leon Russell, Leon Russell. Yay, hey,
2: man. Now, see, now Leon Russell gets yeah. deep respect for me.
0: Explain why? See, yeah. Be,
2: because Leon Russell, when he was writing the song, was no bullshit. <laughs> it was like I was telling you before, like Julius. It was informed music. You know, rock and roll is, as far as I'm concerned, I'm sorry. But rock and roll is not informed music. It's popular music. It's pop music. Pop jazz can never be popular music. See what I'm talking about? I did. Pop music, rock and roll, jazz can never be pop music. So, uh, Leon Russell and there's there's others that have written uh, what I what I can consider informed music. Every time I hear a Leon Russell tune. I'm going to listen for it because I see that he's working something, you know. And this is this is you know, this is where I'm at. That's 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 a 75 year old guy talking.
0: I want you to, you know, because we're going to have to do part three, ASAP. I'm on the. I'm, I got another interview in five minutes, but I wanted you to riff on um, the race car driver neil cassidy ken Babs, um uh what they considered what they coined the lag what what i I want you to break down the lag man because it's going to wind up in the book well yeah
2: you know the lag um the the lag is is all about (laughs) subconscious timing yeah here we go you know how long does it take you to see something funny and then laugh you know uh, how long does it take you to 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 think of something profound and then say it wow the the lag the lag is 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 uh, 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 it, you know it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's the body's way of making rhythm out of consciousness wow damn
0: damn what i'm just trying to process that because sometimes i i tend to i'm not sure if there's any lag time with me and sometimes when i'm just riffing off the cuff um some people will say oh yeah you're doing it now yeah
2: you say um uh, i don't know if there's uh Uh, anything with me but uh, i'm taking off the cuff that's the lag that's the rhythm in it i hear you thinking about it i hear you being concerned about how I
0: hear you yeah I'm thinking more more along the lines of when I write books or when I'm putting books Mm -hmm. together I find myself going back to interviews like the one we're doing and when I hear myself really in that rhythm that beautiful rhythm my oftentimes my words speaking come out much better writing wise than anything I would sit down and try to write
2: every every time usually well hey, hey man i don't know if it was because i'm getting old or not you know i can write something down you know and you know i try to be as hip as possible when i'm writing And she, but when i write down i say damn man did you write that
1: <laughs> you know that sounds really good it doesn't sound like anything
0: you would say you see i i often find myself <laughs> in the in the opposite way is that i could sit down and try to but my anxiety or or lack of patience gets in the way. So oftentimes when I'm on the radio articulating this stuff, whatever comes out of my mouth is often really much more eloquent and beautiful than anything I would try to sit down and write. So I I've, I've just discovered that over time, you know. I think I yeah, mean it's like you know, you're 41,
2: you know, it's going to that's going to change in the next 5 years.
0: No, don't uh, give me 10. Give me 10. 10. Yeah. Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> no, it's going to change. It's going to get it's going to get better you know and this is the thing because you know when you when you add experience to all the stuff that you know right now when you add experience to that it's gonna you know it's going to change you know uh your how you say your heart core your heart core will let you know how far it has changed you know it's 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 like that
0: Arzinia, let's um, try to do uh, another installment um, early next week. I'm not sure when you have to pay bills in Costa Rica, maybe Monday, but maybe we'll try to do it on Tuesday or something. Uh,
2: uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, the first of the week. We're, we're usually uh, scrambling around the house to get everything straightened out like that. But after the, after the third of the month, everything calms down.
0: Well, then, then we'll, we'll, we'll plan on the maybe the 5th. We'll be in touch okay, before that. To, okay, try to have the check here at least by the 2nd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dude, I'm living high on nickels and dimes, baby, all right? <laughs> now, yeah, man. No, man. It's always a pleasure, oh Jacob. Dude, Arzini, man, thank you for going there with me, man. It was. It's always a pleasure, brother. Have a beautiful day, man. You. I'll talk to you soon. All right, boss. Later on. Bye. Bye. Just a master, just another master. Arzania Richardson, live on the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll be back with Dan Rose after this. <laughs>
1: And they, they, uh, Wayne wasn't there when we did it. They overdubbed Wayne. Uh,
0: we're going to run a, a, a call letter break and come right back for about another five, ten minutes. All right. Just hang tight.
1: All right. Steve, could you?